J.B.S. Haldane. He was a famous professor and scientist in London. He died about 50 years ago. He also was a Marxist, a rather notorious individual with respect to his atheism and his uh, ridicule of Christians. This anecdote is related uh, then that I tell about him to a discussion that he once had with a rather famous theologian. And um, this theologian posed this question to him in their conversation. What inference, the theologian asked, what inference might one draw about the nature of God from a study of his works? Haldane replied, an inordinate fondness, fondness for beetles. Now, that is a snide remark. Uh, there are more insect, insects, I suppose, than any other species by far, the different species of insects. But to only be able to see insects, and that's all you see, because you see how Dane was saying, I draw no inferences, except there are a lot of beetles. This year we've had a proliferation of some of you know of stink bugs. Uh, I wonder how they even get in the house, but here they are. If that's all you see, you must have some kind of tin ear to divine things. Now, I have met people, and I am one of them, who have a tin ear when it comes to music. But there are people who have a tin ear when it comes to God. When they see the sun or the moon or the stars or the proliferation of species in nature, they infer nothing from it except that there are a lot of beetles. What a beautiful sun today. But nothing behind it. Nothing behind it. Well, we come to this passage in Isaiah. And there is a sense in which these people, too, are experiencing a great absence. It is the absence of God. They are experiencing in their relationship, supposedly with God, his absence. By the way, have you ever experienced the absence of God? I suspect at times you have. Where are you, O oh Lord? Where are you? I can't feel you. I can't sense that you are with me and you are on my side. Now today, I am interested in this kind of absence. Haldane experienced the absence of God because he did not believe in God. His was, if you will, a metaphysical absence. There's nothing there. But you believe in God. And yet there are times and places when you experience the absence of God and you begin to wonder, what is wrong? What's going on here? 
Today in this sermon, I want to tackle this problem of the absence of God. Uh, Those times when you cannot feel his presence. Those times when you think you need him most and you wonder if there's nothing but indifference. I was told that uh, once, once upon a time when I was an early Christian, uh, by a well-meaning person, and you've probably heard this too, you need to practice the presence of God. I need to practice the presence of God. And this came from a very mature, wonderful Christian. Sound advice in many respects, I suppose, if you qualified it to death. But I'm not sure exactly what it means to practice the presence of God. Does this mean that it's up to me to make God's presence real or not? Boy, that's a big challenge. I'm so up and down emotionally sometime. Yesterday I was happy and then I was low and then I was happy and then I was low. That's what you forget. That's what you get for watching football. (laughs) Now, is it really up to me? Is it really up to me? Now, if it means that, that, that's kind of troubling on my part, if you want to know the truth. I'm troubled by that. That I have to make God real. I thought God was the only truly real being there is and that he is everywhere present. Why do I need to practice his presence? Well, maybe, Pastor, they didn't mean that exactly. And it's probably true they didn't really mean it in that way. It could mean that God is always present and I need to practice self-realization of God's presence. Now, this has the advantage of putting the burden on me. Again, and uh, it, uh, though it seems to me it's contrary to what we talk about human relationships. What if it's true that I can self-realize all I want to and God is still absent because maybe God has chosen to absent himself and not permit me to feel his presence in a good and comfortable way? Actually, that's what seems to be the problem here in Isaiah 64. God has withdrawn himself. They no longer feel him in the way they should and have in the past. Now, in some sense, to self-realize anything is a kind of a mysticism, more incompatible with Buddhism and Eastern religions than it is with Christianity. I happen to think that God, on the other hand, may very well remove himself in the sense of giving me a powerful sense of his presence due to my sins, due to my rebellion. Or it may be that I'm going through a long and deep period of self-doubt because of the blows that I've received in life. And that happens Over and over, we can get to the place due to the fact that our experiences, it even comes down to physical taste and feeling and touching, where they are dulled because we are so weighted down with the burdens of life, 
We have no zest. It may be that I have simply offended the majesty of God. And God in his goodness and mercy, in fact, will not give me his blessing until I seek a place of repentance. Whether it's the pain of life, whether it is that I think I am alone in a cruel and heartless world, absent of any sunlight from God, there is such a thing as experiencing the absence of God. As a matter of fact, as I read this text, I come to the conclusion that Isaiah somewhat was feeling this. Now, I hope you know something about Isaiah. He is a marvelous prophet of God. He is the greatest of the writing prophets. Have you read Isaiah, all 66 chapters? What a magnificent work it is. All those readings from his words that we read at Christmas time, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11. We, we have Handel's Messiah coming up at West Point. I mean, uh, is it the Messiah? I think it is. What a wonderful piece of music by Handel. The words of Isaiah over and over. This is the man that had the great experience in the year which King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. But he seems in chapter 64 to be identifying with the people. Yes, God is absent. Maybe God is judging us. C.S. Lewis once said, God speaks most loud, loud God speaks loudest to us uh, in our pain. And sometimes he is silent. During that time, silence can speak a volume to us. It surely is at least there to drive us to examine where we are before the face of God. And notice what he says in verse 1. This prophet, oh, that the heavens would, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, Lord God, tear, tear apart the heavens and come down to us that we might know and feel and sense your presence. Where are you in my greatest time of need? Now, this has a messianic application, to say the least. It is true that in the fullness of time, God tore open the heavens and sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. This becomes fulfilled in human history. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. But what about my everyday walk with the Lord and I feel his absence? Oh, I've cried out at times and maybe you have too. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Manifest yourself, O oh Lord, even in judgment against my enemies or in your Wonderful, overflowing love in my heart and in my life. But come down, O Lord, come down. The prophets cry out, vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. Make yourself known, O Lord, as you have of old. What I have read about in your scriptures at the time when you met Abraham 
as the friend of God at the time of Moses on the mountain and your holiness was manifest at the time when Joshua led the people to conquer and to enter and to to occupy the promised land. Manifest yourself, O Lord. Reveal to us yourself. Let me say that in this passage of Scripture, too, it is quite clear in verses 6 and 7 that our sins can separate us from the love of God. I want you to look at verse 6 and verse 7. Now remember, this is the prophet Isaiah, who had enough faith at the end of his life, according to tradition, to be placed into a log, an empty log of a tree, a hollowed out tree, and he was sawn in sunder, in two. All of us, he says, have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one, O Lord, calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Sometimes it is that we have offended clearly the majesty of God. We've sinned against this holy God, and he withdraws himself from us and his favor. It is a lesson to us to do one thing. Repent. What Isaiah is calling these people to do as well as himself is to once again turn to the Lord. The word repentance in the Old Testament is a very rich word. It means to turn around or to return. In the New Testament, it means to have a change of mind. But in the Old Testament, it has to... The idea of you're walking in the wrong direction. Turn around and come back. Turn around and come back. Return to me, the Lord says. Here he withholds his presence because his people continue in their unbelief and rebellion, given over to darkness and unrighteousness. God, in his judgment, speaks to us. You know, we live in very secular times today. The absence of God is what some people are striving for. This kind of notion becomes quite accentuated at times like this, isn't it? We've gotten to the place where many people are afraid to say Merry Christmas. I got a piece of mail in today requesting money. I, every, everyone gets mail requesting money. And it started out by saying, Happy Holiday. Before I read anything else, I put it in file 13. That quick. I don't care how good the cause. This is either one of two things. They're either pandering to the times or they dare to write to me. And this was a Christian organization and not be true to themselves. We live at a time and place in history when there is a program to secularize everything, to make the public square empty. 
It is not by default, it is by design. Make no mistake about it. Listen to words carefully and how they are used in our day. Because there is an overwhelming attempt to make the public square naked. No symbolism of the past even, from a historical standpoint, much less, oh God forbid, that to be a cross almost in a public cemetery anymore. God forbid. God forbid that we honor someone in a Christian way. My friends, we are influenced by this, and I believe that if we experience the absence of God, sometimes it is because we are behaving more like the secularist. And God rightly and justly in his mercy withholds himself from us. We have not the boldness that we need. We have not the boldness to be what we are and true to ourselves. This is a great, great truth. Western civilization, whatever it may be, its defects or whatever, is a great civilization. And it was not built on an empty public square. But how can we repent when we don't feel like it? You know, sometimes we know we need something, we don't want to do it. We need something and we don't want to do it. We know what the remedy is, but we don't want to take it. When your physician tells you, to eat certain things and avoid others and to exercise, you know that it's for your benefit. But you may not have the discipline or desire to do it. Oh, if we could ever figure out how to motivate people, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And by the way, I turn Tony Robbins off every time I hear him. He does nothing for me. And if you don't know about him, you're probably better off. But motivation is a problem, isn't it? I had a school teacher tell me once, you know, I, we have the greatest curriculum in the world. The students at times seem to be bright, but they're not motivated. How do I mot motivate them? Well, maybe I need more audiovisuals. Maybe I need to do this. Maybe I need to get some puppets. Well, we do all these things. But true motivation finally comes down to something in here, doesn't it? You have to find a reason. And sometimes we know what we need to do, such as repent, but where does it come from? Well, the scripture does say that God gives us repentance. Not only is faith a gift, but repentance is a gift. We need to cry out to the Lord, Oh God, I believe, help thou my unbelief. But here is one thing that will help you, and I love this because this is where Isaiah wanted to go when he opens up in chapter 63 on this topic. I want you to look at verse 8. Verse 8. How do I turn around? How do I restore that relationship? How does God come to me and renew his presence with me? by you realizing something about God that is terribly important. 
Yet, O Lord, you are our father. This word father here is unusual. You don't find the word father in the Old Testament very much. The fatherhood of God is not there like it is in the New Testament. We automatically think of God as father because of the prayer our Lord taught us when he said, Our Father who art in heaven. This is how you are to pray. This is how you are to look at God. But in the Old Testament, the fatherhood of God is not nearly as prominent as it is in the New. And in verse 8, he says, Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We're all the works of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, toward me. When you begin to think God as a father of tender mercies, it is the goodness of God, the New Testament says, that leads us to repentance. I want you to see this in chapter 63. Look at verse 16 here, how he begins to appeal to God in his fatherly kindness. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from old is your name. He begins to remember who God really is. And he has not cast him off forever, for he is a father who loves you tenderly. My friend, I cannot think of anything that will make you more sane, secure. I cannot think of anything that will enable you to seek the face of God any more than to remember that you have a Father in heaven and underneath you are the everlasting arms of one who loves you supremely. I say this to those who are experiencing periods of darkness and grief and pain of life. To remember that there is one who loves you supremely. And he rightly is to be thanked for all his goodness. I'll close this sermon with something that disturbed me. Uh, the proclamation for Thanksgiving this year had no reference to God. None. So I went back and looked at Abraham Lincoln's proclamation in 1863. Now this is in the midst of the Civil War. Or as my wife likes to say, the Northern War of Aggression. The Civil War. I don't know whether you know how difficult it was during the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of young people were killed. Even on one day at Gettysburg. Casualties everywhere. It was not certain in 1863 that the Union would survive. And Lincoln, in the midst of this, issues a proclamation to make the last Sunday of November, the last Thursday of November, a thanksgiving to the Lord. And if I can read this small writing... 
I want to read it to you. It's several paragraphs. In every paragraph, the name of God is mentioned. And he thanks God in one paragraph. You have not dealt with us, O Lord, after our sins. Thank you. We remember your mercy. He's remembering mercy in this awful conflagration. He says, no human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things that are taking place in our midst, he says. They are the gracious gift of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. Listen to this. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with our heart and one voice by the whole American people, thankful for the military. I do therefore invite my fellow citizen every part of the United States and also those who are in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our benevolent Father. And yet little children are sent home from schools with thankfulness on things. But who do you thank? It doesn't have any reference to anyone. Who dwelleth in the heavens. God is absent. Sometimes simply because we have offended his majesty. And we need to repent. We need to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look in his wonderful face. That's what Isaiah concludes. I don't know that a true Christian can stand very much silent treatment from God. But in his mercy, it is meant to turn you to him that you might experience him once more. After all, that's what Christmas is about. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.